Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is the 3rd of January, 2013, and our guest tonight is Jim Knight, author of High Impact Instruction. Hi, Jim. Hi there. Really glad to have you here. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited to have the conversation. Jim, this was a really fun book to read not only because it felt like the right book at the right moment for me, but so many of the people that you quoted were people that I have followed or been fans of. And those that you quoted that I didn't know represent about 30 bookmarks in my <laughs> book to look their books up. It's the sign of a great book for me. Great. So those of you who are listening, you will notice there is a little bit of a lag there, and it's because Jim's coming through the phone line, so I apologize. Um, so... Uh, I want to sort of put the book in context. I've sent you by email the diagram that I'm going to show right now. Uh, this is the diagram that you have at the beginning of the book in the chapter called Personal Bests. Can you put the book High Impact Instruction in the context of the other work that you've done? Yeah, I'd be glad to. And uh, I've been thinking about what would be a good way to, to articulate that. And if you don't mind, maybe I'll just lay out this uh, sort of big idea. And the big idea is I think you can look at professional learning for teachers in a number of ways, I'm sure, but there are two in particular that come to mind. And one of them is that teachers are intrinsically motivated to, to want to achieve a personal best, to, to do good work, and to get better and continuously improve. And another one is that um, teachers actually aren't that motivated unless there's some kind of punishment or reward to motivate them to move forward, the idea of the carrot and the stick. And I think what Daniel Pink's book, Drive, nicely summarizes looking at the literature on, on motivation is that if you apply the carrot and the stick model to somebody who's actually intrinsically motivated by the work, it actually makes things worse because uh, it demotivates people to be rewarded and punished for doing the work that they actually want to do for intrinsically powerful reasons, in this case, making a difference in the lives of kids. And I think if you look at the, the way professional learning has been conducted in schools across the world, but especially in North America, it's often founded on that notion of carrots and sticks that we have to talk the teachers into it, we have to motivate them, the teachers are resisting, rather than tapping into this sense of a, a genuine desire to reach kids and do better. And I think for professional learning to work, it, it has to, well, at least my take on it is, it has to start from a perception or a deep respect for the profession of teaching. It's emotionally complicated uh, knowledge work that teachers do. And it can't, if you simplify it, you actually make the situation worse than make it better. So that fundamental assumption underrides all the rest of it, which is uh, first off starting from a belief that professional learning should recognize the professionalism of teachers, and I call that the partnership approach. It's essentially saying teachers are people who are professionals with degrees, with experience, and um, you can't dummy down the profession. In fact, what you want to do is you want to treat people as equals, people fully capable of doing their work. And if you don't do that, chances are it will engender resistance. In fact, if you talk down to any professional and uh, treat them like uh, workers on an assembly line, naturally they're going to resist. One of the big things in the book on mistakeable impact is talking about the complexities of helping. And because we've underestimated the complexities of helping, I think we've 
we've engendered what some people call resistance, but I think it's just a natural follow-up from the way schools are put together. So one thing is founding the whole process in a, in a belief in um, the fact that teachers are professionals and they should be treated like professionals. Then when you start from that point, you need to come up with some methodology of bringing people together. Even though everybody's an autonomous professional, how do you bring everybody together to focus on a goal that's going to make a difference? And that's what's described in this idea of a, an impact school where you use a process, something like positive behavior supports, to get understanding and agreement and commitment to a professional learning goal. And then in order to translate that goal into practice, that is, in order to learn practices, you need pretty intensive follow-up. I don't think it's very easy to significantly change the way you do things without someone who's there to make it easier for you, maybe to gather video data for you to look at or be a second set of hands, a second set of eyes to, to see the work. And then high-impact instruction are the teaching practices. And to put it simply, I think if schools are going to move forward, you ground your professional learning in a deep respect for teachers. You have a way to bring the whole system together to focus on, on a few key practices that everybody thinks are important. You have coaching to make it easier for people to implement those practices. And you have a clear, fairly small number of high-impact teaching practices that help you achieve the goals that you set. Um, as I went through the book, over and over and over again, I felt this parallel between the experience of the teacher as learner and the experience of the student as learner. You make that pretty explicit. But this book focuses on the teacher's practices, although every piece I read I thought, well, this could apply to the professional development of the teachers as well. Yeah, I, I would agree with that pretty wholeheartedly. In fact, um, the distinction between power with and power over, which I see as fundamental to creating a positive learning community, I think is a, is a really important part of professional learning. And um, I think that when we're designing professional learning, we can look at the same kind of ideas with respect to what's happening in the planning of the professional learning, and I think monitoring impact, and sort of shifting from declarative knowledge to procedural knowledge that I think is probably at the heart of any learning is certainly at the heart of professional learning too. Yeah, I wanted in this diagram to substitute not only the word student where the word teacher appears because it felt like there were so many parallels there, but then I played around with the idea of, of even putting in parents and the ways in which the same kind of model of open, constructive, positive growth would translate beyond the students but also to the parents within the community. Now that's interesting. Do you mean um, the way the school reaches out to parents, or are you thinking about the way the parents parent their children, or maybe both? Well, uh, clearly there are connections with parenting, and I made that those notes several times in the book, but I was thinking of the ways in which the school reaches out to the parents in the community. L like, um, let's say the second Second pillar by focusing uh, by achieving focus in an impact school, and I by achieving focus in an uh, impact community, and that right. you could go through the same kind of understanding, agreement, commitment processes. Yeah, I think I think too that the, the the relationship between the school and the parents would reflect that that notion of partnership. That we are two equals here. I'm not trying to talk you into anything. I'm not trying to get you to do something I've decided is best for you. I see you as a person who's capable of making your own decisions. And let me tell you what I've got to, to share. And, and you tell me what you think. And we approach each other as equals. I think that would be 
a fundamental thing. And I think when parent involvement in a school breaks down, whether it's in the IEP process or any other kind of process where parents are deeply involved, it's when people feel, parents feel, they've been put one down and the, the expert, so to speak, has put themselves one up. I think it can lead to a lot of difficulties in terms of a meaningful relationship. You don't actually mention in the book that I remember appreciative inquiry or positive deviance, but it seems to me that both of these would also be applicable principles. Are you, are you familiar with them? Yeah. I think um, with respect to positive deviance, um, I agree with I think there's an awful lot to be learn, learned. I'm not 100% sure if it's generalizable to all, the, all different situations. Um, you know, what happens in the developing world is probably not the same as what happens in I don't know, a boardroom, maybe, uh, in every situation. And there are times when there's, I mean, there's expertise to be shared on how to do things that are sort of outside the scope of positive deviance. But where I would see it is, let's say that there's a really uh, powerful teaching practice and a coach is helping the teacher implement that practice because the teacher has come to the coach and says they want to work on that practice. Or they set a goal and they're trying to hit the goal. And the teacher gathers video from the teacher's class, or the coach gathers video from the teacher's classroom and shares it with the teacher. To me, it would make sense that they would start by saying, what's going well and how can we do more of that? To start from the positive, it makes sense. And I think you know, the basic tenet of appreciative in inquiry, that idea of uh, emphasis on what's being successful, I'm, I, I think that's powerful, but not the whole story. I think it's an honest, clear picture of what's happening and a, and a genuine desire to move forward. And we tend to underplay the positive things that are working well. But um, I think if you're honest, you're probably going to see a lot more positive things that are ordinarily seen. So before we sh switch to the, you know, the high impact instruction, another question with regard to the professional development, where does peer learning fit into this model? Well. Um, the high impact instruction book itself is about learning proven practices. And to learn those practices, someone needs to know them really deeply. It's not, it can't be a, a superficial knowledge. It has to be really understood deeply. Uh, maybe manifested in the checklist that Atul Gawande talks about, but certainly something that people can clearly articulate. Now, it's shared with other people in a way that's a true partnership. Um, the person who's the expert in the practice, if you want to use that language, says, well, here's what, here's what research says, but education is never one size fits all. It's always one size fits one. We may need to modify it to fit your class. Let me describe it. You tell me what works and what doesn't work. But in this particular approach, the idea is that there are some things that when you learn them, it's really helpful, and it's helpful to have someone who knows those things really well. Now, that person could be a teacher who decides they're going to become a real expert at this practice and works with their colleagues. It could be a team of teachers who, with some kind of support or possibly teaching themselves, decide, let's get together in a in a group and teach ourselves how to do it. There's a thing I write about called video study groups where each teacher practices a practice and brings it back to the group and they, they talk about it in, in, in a way pretty similar to appreciative inquiry. So there's lots of ways it could manif manifest itself. But there is a sense here that there are, there's no more than a sense, there's, this is 
not to say that there aren't lots of other ways of learning, but one of the ideas about professional learning is that there are some things that make a difference and they have to be learned well for them to make the difference that they're designed to, to, to accomplish. I don't know. What do you think about that? Does that, given what you, you've seen, does that resonate with you as making sense? That makes a lot of Go ahead. That makes a lot of sense to me. It does, and then, again, I apologize for the lag. And that makes a lot of sense to me. I do think there's also a parallel with your community building material in the book as well, right? Because some of those same practices I could see being very effective, or I know are very effective in professional development. Yeah, and in the Unmistakable Impact uh, book, there's a section on what I call uh, intensive learning teams, and it's really about how you establish that kind of community. There's a concept in um, the high impact book, the one that you read, um, that's freedom within form. And the idea is uh, that you can't have real freedom without some kinds of structure. I mean, even something as unstructured as jazz starts with a melody. Linton Michelis would be the first one to tell you, you can't really have music unless you have the structure. And so I think whether you're talking about communities in a school amongst professionals or communities in the classroom, structure is important, but it's structure that it makes people more free, doesn't limit them. Freedom without structure is anarchy and it can lead to frustration and uh, waste. But structure without freedom is oppressive and it causes resentment. What you need is a structure. Like a good example of freedom within form is the, the idea of the talking stick that Aboriginal cultures use. That little ritual, that structure you introduce into the community actually increases freedom because everybody gets a chance to speak. And so. Um, I think that's definitely an overlap, that you, you, you need structures to help a community of learners, whether they're in kindergarten or um, in the staff lounge, and for them to function, they need, they need structures to make it happen. One of the things I really liked about John C. Lee Brown's book, A New Culture of Learning, was the way in which the word culture both has a connotation of um, unmitigated growth, but also has a connotation of culture in a petri dish, which is bounded uh, in some way, and so uh, he makes. I think he makes sort of an explicit point of this this same idea of freedom and form, or the two ways in which you have culture, growth, and boundaries. Yeah, I think in the classroom you can see it where a teacher has has sometimes worked with the students to articulate the structures, or or just help the students learn the structures because they think they're important. Once those structures in place, the kids end up having a lot more freedom. It's a lot more positive environment, but it's kind of like learning the rules of the game. You can't really play unless you know the rules of the game. So, um, but it's you, you can't have it without freedom. A lot of people think I have to have structure and tell people what to do, and that, unfortunately, I think, isn't the way to go. And you, you can't just have freedom without the structure; it's going to potentially be um, unsuccessful. I'm okay with this leg. We can just sort of talk over top of each other. We'll make it work. Another sort of really interesting parallel for me was your list of the seven principles that educators should use to guide their actions with colleagues. Because I read that and I thought, you know, this list is for me a great list for students. Right? Equality, choice, voice, dialogue, reflection, praxis, and reciprocity. Yeah, I, I thought a lot about whether or not I should articulate those principles um, in the same way that I do for teachers in the classroom. and. I decided to describe it in a slightly different way, in part because I haven't done research on that. I did a, uh, a pretty rigorous study looking at partnership with respect to professional learning. And, and I thought that maybe a better way to articulate it, and this is picking up on a lot of what Bob Sutton summarizes in his books on leadership, but um, 
a better way to look at it is just to talk about power over, which is coercive power, and power with that's power that's built with the students. And I've thought a lot about that since the book came out. And whether you're talking about teachers or you're talking about students, I don't know if this sounds too simplistic, but what I've come to believe is when you stop seeing the other person as a human being who's capable of making decisions on their own and who has a need for autonomy, when you just see them as pawns to be moved around, it's not going to be successful. Um, so whether you're talking about professional learning in the schools, you're talking about learning in the classroom. And this is what Paulo Freire talked about with respect to dialogue. When you do banking education and you just tell people what to do, learn what I tell you, he would argue it's dehumanizing. But when you engage in dialogue or when you see the other person as a person with a brain who's capable of making decisions on their own, then he says it's mutually humanizing. And I think that's true whether you're talking about professional learning for adults or you're talking about learning in the school that you want to set up situations that are mutually humanizing. Whether, whether you're talking about second graders or 12th graders, where there is thinking going on and that the teacher takes delight in being a part of that thinking. So yeah, I love that. And again, it's so fascinating to me how parallel those experiences are. Another piece that comes up that we're going to talk about, I'm sure, is the data piece. And it, um, you talk about it as creative tension you know, what we want in a clear picture of current reality. When data is used to give us that picture of reality or allows us to get closer to that reality, then we have a really positive use of the data, which many would describe as formative assessments. Um, I've noticed that in the business world, that the data typically works really well when it's not punitive, but when it's intended as a learning tool. Um, feels like that extends both to teachers in the current environment and to students. Yeah, I agree 100% on what you're saying. Um, I think that, for, well, this is Robert Fritz's idea, and the same thing that Peter Senge talked about in the fifth discipline. But I think that for real growth to take place, you do need two things. You need a goal you're trying to reach. You need to have a clear picture of current reality. And you can't have a, a really important goal. You can't have a high leverage goal unless you know what's really happening. And what we've seen when we've shown video to teachers is that, and actually it's not just teachers, is when we show video of people doing their professional practice, whatever it might be, when they look at the video, they're really surprised at what they see. It's like when you hear your voice for the first time in a recording and you've never heard it before, uh, how, it's like that to the power of 10. It's just like it doesn't look like what I expected. So the first thing is you need a clear picture of current reality. However you get it, it has to be something where it's, it's honest and it's, and it's accurate and, and the person who's involved has to say, wow, I mean, I really I get, I get a clear picture of where I am. And then you need, once you've got that clear picture of current reality, you have to monitor progress towards the goal, so you need data for that. I think the idea that we're going to do a quick walkthrough of every teacher and rank them and give them scores, and some are A's and some are B's and some schools are F's and all these different things, um, it's not about the data. It's about the data as a tool for the person to do what they want to do, which is get better. I think if you really honestly sat down with most teachers in America and, and they felt truly respected and you said, would you like to be involved in a process where you can get better and it's deeply respectful and it's driven by you, and they didn't have any baggage about the way they've been mistreated with previous professional learning, I think most of them would say, yeah, I'd like to reach more kids. But when people check out of professional learning, it's when they, they don't feel they've been respected, when they feel, as Edgar Schein says, they've been put one down, and they're treated like a child rather than treated like an animal. And to me, data, um, 
is vital, but it has to be data that first off the teacher wants to look at, and that gives a clear picture that the teacher sees as reliable, and that there's a tool for helping them achieve a personal best, or at least to try to continuously improve. So, um, you know, the idea that we can just measure people and they're going to get better without support and without it, them being active participants and setting the goals and without them seeing the importance of it, I think, is naive. But it's also naive to think that people can significantly improve without having a clear picture of what's happening and having some way of monitoring progress. I mean, to some extent, when you look at the data, it's a little bit like, in my case, I, I'm always trying to be a runner. And, and I know that if I lose weight, I'm going to run faster. And this, you know, like I just had Christmas. I don't really want to get on the scales right now and look at reality. But the truth is, at some point, I'm going to have to look at reality so I can measure my progress. So I want to move from sort of the broader discussion, and I'm and I'm flipping back and forth between the two mind maps for those in the room, and drill down on basically the the forward discussion, high impact instruction, which starts with content planning. And you indicate that there are three sort of elements to content planning. And not everybody wants to start with the same one. But do you want to talk us through sure. those three? Well, um, and this isn't the only way to do it. And to some extent, there are more sophisticated and more comprehensive models of planning than, than the one in my book. I wasn't trying to give the last word on all these things. But I wanted to give people a, a comprehensive picture of what could happen so that then they can go back and go deeper if they want to. But I think that the, the four pieces of the book, content planning, formative assessment, instruction, and community building, they all overlap. You can't just do one, so you need some, some, some big picture of all of them. But for me, the, the content planning um, involves getting a clear picture of what you want to teach. And that, that the way as I, I articulate it is you have to say, what's the knowledge the kids need to learn? Uh, what are the skills they need to acquire? And what are the big ideas they need to learn? This is what Lynn Erickson will refer to as understandings. But you know, what are the concepts? What are the overarching uh, structures? What are the big ideas the kids need to learn? Like why are we learning this? And uh, the aha moments kids need to get with the content. So you might start with questions to articulate that. Then uh, once you've got your questions, the, the next step is to say, well, what are the answers to the questions? What do the kids need to know? What do they need to be able to do? And what are the big ideas? And I articulate them as what I call specific proficiencies. You break down in detail what those answers to those questions are and figure out some methodology of, of checking for understanding. And I list about 20 different ways of checking for understanding in the classroom. Um, if you look at uh, Csikszentmihalyi's research on um, optimal experience, he would say if you, if you really want engagement, people have to clearly understand the goal and they have to have clear feedback on their progress towards the goal. And the challenge has to be just a little bit more difficult to the person's skill level. Well, formative assessment is a way for students to understand the goal and monitor the progress. And it gives the teacher data so that they can hit the sweet spot for learning, that spot that's just a little bit more challenging than, than the kid's skill level. And the third uh, part of it is, for me, is a learning map. It's a visual representation of what's going to be learned in the class. And it details uh, pretty clearly. The, it's kind of a look, like a living study guide for the students. but it, taps into that notion that uh, students benefit from seeing a visual representation of the content, what Marzano calls non-linguistic representations. And it lays out for students, here's where we are today, here's where we're going to go. And, and they build the map as the unit progresses. So by the end of the unit, they've got a, a sort of depiction of the, 
the big ideas that have been learned in the class and the skills and the knowledge all kind of laid out for them. So you certainly model the learning maps in the book, right? Uh, all through the book are these sort of visual representations of the ideas. Um, and, and you also talk about co-constructing learning maps, which I thought was really valuable. You know, I've used maps myself, and so maybe I'm biased in their favor, but I've used them for a long, long time since I read Gabrielle Rico's uh, writing on, I think it's Writing the Natural Way, where she talks about clustering. And then my colleague at the University of Kansas, uh, Keith Lentz, created uh, graphic organizers, uh, he called it the course organizer, unit organizer, and lesson organizer that used a learning map. And um, you know, I've seen the benefit as a teacher for decades. And there's a fair bit of research to support it. Um, Keith's work showed that uh, it made significant differences, particularly for students with uh, learning difficulties, such as a learning disability. Um, so I've been pretty supportive of the learning map. And it may not work for every student, but I think um, it also um, gives you a, a tool for the advanced organizer at the start of the class, the post organizer at the end of the class. It accommodates kids. Uh, uh, note-taking needs, and um, um, it, it serves a lot of purposes. Uh, it also, I've interviewed a lot of teachers who use them, and the funny thing is they tell me there's three reasons they like them. They say the thing they like the most about them is sharing them with parents on parent-teacher conferences because it lays out for teach parents exactly what's going to be taught. The second thing they say is it really keeps me organized, and they like the fact that it helps them know what they're, think deeply about what they're going to teach and then having a plan. And then they say, but it helps kids. So, um, so uh, I think they are really helpful, and they're a big part of the way I do professional learning. But they're also a part of the creative process. I probably wrote um, at least 75% of that book by getting up at the whiteboard and drawing a little map of what I was going to I was going to cover in the text, and then looking at the map and using that before I write my my first draft. Yes, the book is clearly well organized. Uh, for those who are listening, each of those final lines on the map on the screen are chapters. And so if you if you get the book and you want to drill down on any particular one, those each actually represent a chapter. The chapter on formative assessment um, I really enjoyed. And, and you, in talking about flow experiences, you also make a connection with why gaming is so attractive. I think that's worth drawing well, out. Well, um, one of the consultants we had at the center, and in fact the author of one of the probably most influential books I've, I've read, and I'm sure many people listening in are really familiar with his work, Chiksen Mahai. Um, you know, he studied uh, people all over the world to say, well, what's going on when people are at their happiest, when they're experiencing optimal experience, which he called it optimal experience. And he came to refer to it as flow because so many people he interviewed talked about these positive experiences as flow experiences. And Chiksen Mahai said, when you're really at your best, when you're really enjoying yourself, and he doesn't use this terminology, but it's mine. He says there's subjective uh, elements, and then there's a structure to it. And the subjective element is, what's it feel like to really be happy? And well, time flies. And you're completely consumed by the activity you're participating in. And you feel like you're in control of something that can't actually be controlled. And there's kind of a blending between the experience in your consciousness, he calls it uh, this uh, paradoxical control. You actually feel like you're controlling something you can't control. And the Grateful Dead has a line for it. They say, the music played the band. It's like you can't really realize, am I doing it or, or this thing doing it? And, and naturally, kids are going to be at their best when they're in a flow experience because they're 100% engaged in what they're doing. They're not distracted by the things. They're locked in. 
fact, what Chiksen Mahai said, which I think is really an important thing, is that people's decisions about their careers should really be based on what engages me, because you'll do your best work when you're engaged. And when he's at the, this is just a sidebar, but he was at the university and I drove him back to the airport, he said to me, the people that worry me the most are people who struggle to be engaged, because happiness requires engagement. Anyway, that's how it feels. But the structural element is that you have a, when he, he did this research, he had people all over the world building in these surveys. He got 100,000 of these surveys and um, looked at them and said, well, what's going on when people are happy? And he says they have a clear goal and they have clear evidence that they're moving towards the goal. He says it doesn't matter what the activity is, but if they care about the goal and they care about their progress, people are going to be hooked into the process. And so a kid playing a video game, you know, he knows every second what his score is, and he knows that if I move my finger this way or that way, it's going to uh, affect the score. So goals and feedback are a critical part. The other part is challenge and skill. If something is not challenging enough, it's going to be boring. If it's too challenging, it's going to create frustration and anxiety. He said what you need is something a little bit like a Gottfried zone of proximal development, a little bit more challenging than where you are. And as your skill goes up, the challenge has to increase. So again, a video game, level one, well, your grandma could play level one. That's easy. Well, I've mastered level one. Now there's level two. Now there's level three. And as I get better, it gets more challenging. And so formative assessment gives data to teachers so they can hit that, what I call, sweet spot for learning. So they can, they can keep the challenge just a little bit beyond the skill level because they know how well every kid's doing. Because what Stiggins told me when I interviewed him was that formative assessment should be the teacher can look at the students and know how every student is doing, and every student knows how well they're doing. So if you think of the video game, what would happen if the video game was always the same level? And what would happen if the video game didn't have a score? And what would happen if the video game uh, didn't have any kind of data on progress and the, and the student didn't understand or get any clear sense of a goal? Well, if there's no goal and there's no feedback and it's always the same level, that game's going to get tossed away. Nobody's going to play it because it's going to be boring. And yet, for a lot of kids, school, I think, seems like that. They have no sense of where they're, what the goal is. Uh, they don't have any kind of clear picture of how they're progressing. And it's always the same level of challenge, either too boring or too anxiety-inducing. I love that. So I'm going to move on to instruction. I'm not going to do this in order because uh, every, almost every chapter of the book starts with a story. Um, and so stories is one of your big pieces here. Uh, there's a little bit of recursion even because you start the stories chapter with a story, which gave me a good smile. Well, I, I, you know, I think when you look at the, the really um, important and influential and books that influence me, um, books that, that really articulate what, what good instruction looks like, I'm not sure that they've given full uh, emphasis to stories. And, uh, and I, I think some people might think that seems a little um, off track, but human beings are storytelling people. Uh, we're storytelling beings. I mean, there are every sacred text is filled with stories to help make the point. And there are cave drawings from 40,000 years ago that tell stories. And probably everybody listening today either told a story or heard a story. Stories are what we do. And I did a thing where I interviewed uh, university students across Canada in three provinces, 80 different students, and I, I talked to each of them for over an hour. I asked them about their learning in universities. They were full-time employees who were going back to school to study. 
And the number one finding in that, that study was that people said, I like the professors who tell stories. Stories humanize the material. They give me a context, and I remember the stories. I had an experience where I was listening to Susan Scott's, uh, one of her books, I think, First Conversations, and then read the half of the book, and then I put it down, not because I didn't like the book, because I love the book. I think it's great. But I just got distracted by some other project that had to get done. And then, then I had to drive to, from Kansas City to, to uh, Denver. And I thought, well, I'll get an audio copy of the book and, and listen to the book. And I hadn't read the book for about a year and a half. But every time I heard the story, I went, oh, yeah, here's all that information about this and about that. This, I mean, um, what Heath and Heath talk about was stickiness. A story helps people remember the content. It sticks to them so they can they, the, the content sticks to the story, whatever the learning is. I think the other thing about stories is they build community because you could have, if you're talking to adults, for example, you could have every person representing the whole political spectrum. People, whoever, if they talked about politics, would be up in arms. But if you tell them a story about their mother, the whole group will go, "Yeah, I've had that experience too," and it and it creates community in that sense of everybody going, "Yeah, I know what that I know what that feels like. I know I I, I get that." So. I really believe strongly that we don't tell enough stories in the classroom that it's important. There's a school in Monterey, Mexico, uh, international school there, where they spend quite a bit of time on telling stories. And the teachers would come together and talk about their stories, and they'd go back and try them out. They watch video of telling stories, and I think I think there's a a lot to be learned. And it, I think it just it it creates a, a whole different kind of community when when stories are part of what's taking place. The thing I'd add to it is. Most people will say, no. you know, I'm not Chris Rock. I, I don't tell stories. And then they sit in the, at lunchtime or they sit at their dinner table and do nothing but tell stories. I don't buy the notion that people can't tell stories. You can't maybe tell a joke the way somebody on TV would tell a joke. But we are natural in telling stories. And it's just for people to get at ease with doing what they already do most of the time. I'll hear people tell me I can't tell stories. And then in telling me they can't tell stories, they'll tell me a story about it. So I, 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 I really think we all have it within us to make stories a part of the way we, uh, we lead learning. One of my favorite stories in the book is the one that starts out the thinking prompts uh, chapter. And it's Natalie Gilbert uh, singing at the Portland Trailblazer game. And I felt like that was such a rich story at so many levels. Well, what I like about that story and why I think it's a good thinking prompt, and a thinking prompt is any kind of tool you put in front of uh, learners to provoke discussion and dialogue. But what I like about the story is, uh, first off, uh, it's just so compelling. If, if, you, if you just look up Maurice Cheeks and Natalie Gilbert on YouTube and search it, if you haven't seen it, it's a, it's a really powerful little two-minute clip. But the story moves you. You know, I showed that clip to principals, and I had a principal stand up after I showed it in uh, Texas and outside of Dallas, and she said, that's what I want to be. I want to do that. And so part of the reason the story is compelling, I think, is because it's, uh, it's moving. And, and it taps into, I think, something universal, that we do want to help other people, that we do want to make a difference. And then the, the, the story that's captured in that, that thinking prompt, that video clip, is one that's complicated. People can see it from different perspectives, and they can um, they have a lot to say about it. it. It provokes discussion when you hear it. People just can't wait to talk about what they just saw. And it's concise, and it and it has powerful messages to convey, and it can be seen from multiple perspectives. So it's a simple little thing. A young girl comes out to sing the national anthem. 
She struggles to find the words two sentences in. The crowd gives her a Bronx cheer. 17,000 people in the stadium who could help her, but the one person that helps her is the coach on the basketball team for the Trailblazers, Maurice Cheeks, and he comes over and feeds her the words. And then that little gentle and gracious act kind of inspires the audience, and the crowd starts to sing, and the players start to sing, and the crowd gets louder, and even the coach on the other team starts to sing. A friend of mine, Amy Patty, was at the game, and she said it was so powerful, you wouldn't believe it. She said grown men had tears in their eyes. And she said, I wonder what it would have been like to have been one of those people who booed that little girl when she lost the words and felt what a community of support feels like. So it's a, it's a powerful piece of video. I've seen it probably 100 times or more, and it moves me every time I see it. Another story you tell is the story of the teacher uh, teaching Macbeth using closed questions. Can you describe open and closed questions? And in the book, you don't give an example of an open question she would have used for Macbeth, but maybe you have one to share. Well, first off, um, the, the stories, a lot of them come from coaches who we did research with. And, and that particular story was uh, Marty Alford, who's a, actually studying bug in the year coaching now for her doctoral dissertation. But she was an instructional coach in one of our, our projects. And I, I sat down the coaches I'd worked with, and some of them were in Beaverton, Oregon, and some of them were in Topeka, Kansas. And I just said, well, you know what the, the big four teaching practices are. Which, which one do you want to talk about? She said, I want to talk about questioning. And uh, then she told this story of a teacher who was teaching Macbeth. And she said that um, her use of questioning was kind of like, if I remember her phrasing, it was like a behavioral tick. She just asked all these questions. And the kids were profoundly not engaged. They were asleep. They were doing other homework. And there were four or five kids who would answer questions, but the rest of the kids, were, it was just like a, a sort of a, a real lack of engagement. So Marty recorded the class. Video recorded the class, had the teacher watch it, and she watched it. And then, then she said, well, what do you think about what, what's going on here? Maybe she didn't video record it, but she recorded the number of questions. And almost all the questions were low-level questions, and they were closed questions. Now, um, what uh, I, when I've looked at the literature on open questions and closed questions, or open-ended questions and closed-ended questions, I haven't been able to pin down a specific definition that's universally accepted. So I have a definition, but it might not be the people listening. It might not be their definition. But for me, an open question, of course, is usually a longer response. But to me, the way I define an open question is what, what open means is there's an endless number of possible responses you could give to the question. So if I said, you know, what do you love about um, California, um, a person could give an enormous number of questions, or they could say the Golden Gate Bridge. But there's, there's, you essentially could keep talking forever. That's what an open question is. It's an unlimited number of responses. And a closed question is one that has a limited number of responses. And eventually, you can say, that's it. I've reached the end. It's closed in the sense that there's a finite number of responses. And usually, the responses are short. They're two or three words. But it, to me, if you said, name all the communities in California, that would be a closed question. Because ultimately, you get to Zinfandel or something, and you say, OK, I'm done. Now, in that class, what, what Marty said is, the teacher really struggled with being comfortable shifting her way of teaching. She said you could see the teacher was struggling with moving from open, closed questions to open questions. And she said the students even looked at the teacher like, what happened to our teacher, and who is this new person who's been presented before us? And at first, the kids 
they were just as unclear on what was going on as the teacher was. But as it progressed, and she used a few more uh, open questions, the conversation really opened up. And I said to her, "How many kids were authentically engaged when you did the close when the teacher did the closed questions?" And I think she said like about 10 percent. And it was more than 90 percent who were authentically engaged when the teacher got into open questions. And the open questions were about the definition of murder. And the kids had all these thoughts about ethics and, and, and murder and violence that came out in that conversation when she opened up the conversation. So she just asked them, is, is every kind of killing murder or something like that? I don't know the exact question, but it was around issues of violence that were you know, really depicted in Macbeth. And by the end of it, kids were leading up. They had things to say. It was incredibly lively, according to Marty's account of what happened. I do a weekly podcast uh, with a woman named Audrey Waters, and we've talked several times on the show because she's described the difficulty her 18-year-old son is having right now, who graduated from high school, but um, really has no sense of capability to um, make anything happen on his own. So I really related to the story of David. Right, that's right. I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly, but I thought that was just fabulous. Can you tell us a little bit about um, that and, and how well, that relates to authentic uh, learning? Authentic learning uh, is learning that um, sometimes might be called project-based learning or it might be called experiential learning. Uh, it also could be called a learning simulation. But it's where instead of uh, hearing about what you're supposed to be learning, you actually you actually go do the learning. That's what That's what I mean by authentic learning. We're actually doing the phenomenon. We're not talking about science. We're actually doing science. And um, I think David's a real pioneer in this, and he's really been featured in a lot of a lot of different authors' works. Uh, Ken Robinson talks about him. Uh, Daniel Pink talks about him. He's mentioned in Fortune magazine. And he's um, he's about as passionate a person as I know when it comes to education. He and I have uh, spent a lot of time uh, working together on. He's a founder of this project for telementors, where kids are linked up with mentors around the world through telementoring. And um, and uh, you know we've had some pretty strong arguments because his passion and my passion are so strong. Uh, but I, he, I don't know anybody who uh, cares more about kids and who um, he's really a magnificent teacher. I watched him teach uh, my stepson how to do archery, and it was just a joy to watch him patiently explain the simple steps of the procedure. It was really a beautiful thing to see. You say, you know, that is that is something to, to watch, that, that kind of teaching. Well, in this particular project in Colorado, um, there's a teacher, Amy Schmer, that worked with uh, David. And uh, David happened to have this, uh, find out about this uh, beautiful ranch, thousands of acres in, near the Colorado Rockies. And um, he talked to the owner of this ranch, which is kind of a resort, and he said, is there any chance you'd let students come up and work here, not even having schools he was going to work with yet, but he thought this would be a great place for kids to come up and do scientific experiments. So they, the, as it turned out, the owner of the ranch said, well, we've always been waiting for somebody to ask us to do that. We think that would be great. So then David worked with a school in I think it's Fort Collins and met this uh, sixth grade, I think it's sixth grade science teacher, Amy Schmer. And um, she, he said, well, let me explain to you um, what we could do, what the, what what some possibilities are, but I don't want to do it unless the kids want to do it. And so the idea was they go up and do some kind of scientific experiment, not knowing what it would be, but they would do it up in this park. 
Well, they narrowed it down to a few things, but the kids decided they wanted to focus on looking at wildlife and what could be done to support wildlife in that area. And they agreed they wanted to do the project. And they discovered that what they needed to work on was, and all the kids went up there, and they, well, not all the kids, but a number of the kids went up there, and they, they decided they wanted to do this really important, what they thought was a really important project to support the wildlife in this area. And it became clear that water was a real issue. Well, David helped Amy link up every student with a mentor through the internet who would help them do research on the things they were looking at. And these kids in middle school were talking to some of the best people in the world about how to support wildlife in the wild and how to support water and what to do. And then they had to figure out, well, how do we keep the, 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 the they created this uh, special area for water for the wildlife. How do we keep it from freezing? And they did little experiments at their classroom. And, and their, their knowledge exploded, but they were really, really passionate about the work. And it, just to capture what it was like near the end of the project, um, Amy, the teacher, uh, had a, a death in her family. And she couldn't be there for a week. And so a sub came into the class. And Amy gave the sub some guidelines on what, he thought that the, what she thought that the kids should work on. And David was in the classroom. He says supporting the class, but not teaching it. He was a support to the teacher. And so the substitute teacher said, OK, please take your textbooks out. I want to turn to such and such a place, and we can work on this. And one of the kids turned to David and said, hey, somebody needs to tell him we are not the textbook kids. That's not what we do here. We do real stuff here. <laughs> and that's kind of the, the idea of authentic learning and what happened with that, that project. I love that, <laughs> that final line. Well, it was so interesting to sort of read David's strong commitment to helping youth have confidence, skill, and ability, and then to move into the community building piece. Because um, co-constructing with students, a power with, not power over, freedom within form, these all speak to an ultimate goal of the student being self-directed when they leave school. Um, I'm making that connection. That's not something you've talked about there. But it really felt to me like there's a strong connection with the next section on kind of what your ultimate goal for a student is. You know, I, I, I like that connection. It's not one that was explicit in my mind, but I, I certainly think it, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I think uh, um, it's a great addition to the book. <laughs> I like it. But I think the thing is, for me, that um, human beings, William Urey talks about this in his work, uh, William from, uh, from Harvard, that human beings, you know, they have a need for autonomy. And if we ignore that need for the autonomy, it, it really stands in the way of any kind of commitment to whatever the thing is that's being shared. Whether you're talking about adults or children, people need to have some kind of autonomy. And I think those uh, teaching strategies around community building, um, they're as I think about it, they're, they're designed to acknowledge the need for people's uh, autonomy while at the same time sort of ensuring that there's structures in place and that there's going to be a, a significant learning taking place, that it's not just autonomy. It's, 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 uh, it's autonomy, but there's, there's structure. So I think that, that recognition of autonomy does do that. It does prepare people to live independent and, and self-motivated, self-directed lives when they leave the school because it starts from a perspective that, that they have to make their own decisions about certain things and they have to, uh, they have to help communicate, help, help build that community. So 
honestly hadn't thought about that, but I, I, I like it. And maybe I'll just add one more thing is that um what what the book is not, but what it what would be nice to do maybe somewhere down the line is the book doesn't talk about how do the students themselves take this idea and use it themselves. Um how do the how do the students use learning maps to help them with their learning? How do the students uh, use the relationship building strategies that are in the community building section. How do they do that with each other to to develop relationships? And uh, and I think there's a lot to be said about how the ideas that are in the book um, that teachers would use could also be strategies for students. Yeah, there you go, <laughs> echoing my parallel <laughs> uh, brainstorm. It felt to me like it's so many levels. All of this actually matches up. Um, uh, I wanted to I wanted to have you talk a little bit more about the power with not power over. Um, this was you know so I don't think we talk about a lot about this concept, or at least we don't talk about it enough. And um, and I tried to just give people a vocabulary for dealing with something that when they hear it they go, yeah, that is that is an important 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 notion. And power over is power where. Um, it's coercive power. It's power where I'm telling you what to do and you have to do it my way. And the truth is that um, it feels good to have control over other other beings. You know, I don't know if I told this story in the book, but I tell it when I talk about this concept that you know when I tell my dog and snap my fingers and I say sit down and the dog sits down, it feels good. It's pleasurable to feel that kind of control. It's probably more pleasurable for some people than other people, but all of us want to have that control. But the trouble is when my need for control runs up against a student's need for autonomy, it can be a vicious cycle and it can really interfere with learning taking place. And it isn't about my need for control, it's about the student's need for learning. And so that kind of coercive power of you do it because I said so, I think it's I think it's dehumanizing. I think you could argue it's immoral, and I think it's bad for learning. And power with though is where you get to know a lot about the students, and uh, you understand what makes them tick and what their interests are. And there's some in the book. There's a lot of resources with respect to um, how to get to know more about your students. And you treat the students like human beings. You treat them with respect, and you listen to them when they speak, and you don't interrupt when they're talking. And um, you offer them choices. Doesn't mean you don't maintain control, but you offer them choices. I mean, if I've got this right, I think when the tripod survey out of Harvard looked at the characteristics of effective teachers and they correlated what students says about the teachers with value-added growth in the kids, they found two things to be most important. One of them was that the teachers had control, and that is the students would answer items on the survey that said something like, "When the teacher asks the kids to do something or us to do it, we do it," and students do what the teacher asks them to do. But the other thing that was important was caring. The teacher wants me to succeed. The teacher understands me. The teacher believes I can succeed. The teacher cares about me. Caring or control without caring is just depressive. But caring without control, that's not a good situation. I think it's Fred Jones who says, it's the naive hope of many new teachers that if they just care enough about the kids, everything will take care of itself. But you really need caring and control. And power with is about having control, but it's control that comes out of relationships and understanding and listening, and also structures that make the processes work. We've only got a few minutes, but I do want to be sure to right. um, to talk about this witness to the good. 
and, and this lovely story of the teacher who makes a list at the end of each week of the students that she may have overlooked or not paid enough attention to. The former director of the, the teaching channel and his fellow who set up the uh, teacher TV in the UK. And he said what this teacher does is every Friday she sits down and she lists all of her students that she teaches. And she looks to see which kids' names come at the end of the list and which students did she forget. And then she uh, thinks long and hard about the strengths of those students that she's forgotten there that come at the end of the list. And then she makes a commitment next week to seek those kids out and talk to them and learn about them and make sure that they know that she cares and that she's there in their lives so that they won't be at the end of the list or won't be forgotten the next week. And it's just, she said, it, he said it only takes uh, about her about 10 minutes at the end of the week and it's proven to be a really powerful, powerful way and it's, you're right, it's such a cool thing, that it's such a, you know, really respectful thing of the teachers. Um, as far as the concept of witness to the good goes, um, the idea, uh, is popping up in all kinds of situations now. It's in, um, for example, Daniel Pink's new book uh, called uh, about selling. I think it's Human to Sell. Uh, I think it's the name of the title. You know, he talks about Barbara Fredrickson's research on positivity, and then John Gottman's research on relationships. It says that you need a five-to-one ratio of interaction. And the work I did with Randy Sprick and Wendy Ranke, and Wendy Ranke's dissertation in particular, showed that as as, as positive attention goes up, disruptions in the class go down. Um, the idea of witness to the good is you have to teach yourself to look for what's going well. And it's natural to see what's not going well. Um, Winifred Gallagher's book called Wrapped that looks at uh, attention, she says there's top-down attention and there's bottom-up attention. Bottom-up attention is attention you can't help but notice. And so if you have 28 students and two of them are really off track, probably the two you're going to see are going to be the two that are off track not the 28 who are, who are on task and learning and being constructive. And so the idea of uh, being a witness of the good is you have to use this top-down attention which teaches you to look for what's going well so you can get your positivity ratio or your ratio of interaction up to at least three or four times as much positive feedback as, as corrective feedback. Interestingly, Barbara Fredrickson research says when she studied organizations that the, her magic number is at least three to one, Gottman's is five to one, but she's, in her research, she says if it gets to 11 to 1, it's actually counterproductive. So it's not to say that you have to be, you have to overdo it with positive. Too much positive isn't, isn't really the secret either, but, it, but you have to get to much more positive attention than negative attention. I've observed a lot of classrooms, and um, it's not uncommon for it to be six or more corrective statements before there's any attention given to the positive statements. And you can go a lot deeper with this by looking at uh, the idea of the growth mindset, Carol Dweck's work, or looking at other information on, on the importance of specific feedback. But the first thing is just that you're paying attention to when students are doing what they're supposed to do. And I, I don't want to take too much time on this, but when you go into classrooms and you start to just keep track of how often does a teacher pay attention to students doing things that are going well, being a witness to the good, and how often does she correct them or he correct them, and you just tally it. It gives you a, an indication of why the classroom feels a certain way. When it's a six-to-one ratio of interaction, the room just feels different. Jim, we try and finish on time as a courtesy to our guests. I want to thank you for coming. Really I've enjoyed it. I, it's, uh, I feel like I'm you know, in a remote place um, on CNN, and there's that gap in between the conversation. But I've enjoyed the, the conversation a lot, and it's uh, been a pleasure. 
Thanks, Jim. Have a great night.